Welcome back to the Flat Out RC podcast, the podcast that is dedicated to all things model flight. We're talking planes, helis, drones, and everything in between. My name is Andrew Sill. I'm the host of this program. Once again, thank you for, for joining me here for this week's episode. Now, another great episode as far as I'm concerned. And of course, I'm a little bit biased, but uh, our special guest today is Mike O'Reilly, a well-known figure in the Australian hobby scene, not only one of the founders, operators of the uh, business called Model Flight and O'Reilly Model Products, their distribution arm, but also very well-known model enthusiasts, especially in that gliding. So we're going to talk a bit about gliding today and a few other things and hear, hear about Mike's story. So uh, stay tuned. Now, before we get to that, let's take a look at what's been happening around the traps. Well, a run of not much news continues in this hobby, but I suppose the hobby's not to blame. Uh, you know, the coronavirus still lingers on down here in uh, Victoria, in Melbourne. We're locked down for at least another five weeks now. And I don't know about you guys that are stuck here in Melbourne. It's really playing with our minds. I'm now down to working on the uh, those models that I call uh, the, um, not the too hard basket, but, you know, this one can wait kind of model repair. So I'm, I'm, I'll talk a bit later about what I'm refurbishing, but uh, not much happening in the hobby scene. There's a few events happening up uh, that have been on. The IMAC event was up uh, in uh, New South Wales, I think, or Queensland, one of the two. I think it was in New South Wales. And uh, besides that, not too much action happening. But there's something that caught my eye, which I think is a great uh, idea, which is Horizon Hobby. We all know who Horizon Hobby is, the, uh, the the company that brings us E-Flight, Blade, Hangar 9, um, Spectrum, you know, those kind of brands. They have this air meet every year. and uh, But because of the whole corona thing, people can't get there and whatever, they're going to still run it, but it's going to be a live event. So this is what it says. Circumstances do not allow a regular air meet with up to 30,000 spectators this year. That's why I bring the Airmate to your home. Airmate Live. Join the event live and enjoy a flight show like you've never seen before. Eight TV cameras are ready to capture the best pilots in the scene for you and bring you closer to the action than ever before. Look forward to slow motion replays. Pretty good. Uh, sounds good. Now, normally the event is held uh, in Bavaria. It's in Europe. Uh... But yeah, so I think they're filming it. Basically, it's going to be a live event. Now, the Airmeet Live 2010 will be available free of charge via all Horizon Hobby social media channels. So, you know, get onto their Facebook page and uh, you'll be able to see this live activity. No matter where you are, as long as you have internet-enabled device with you, the Airmeet is available for you if you already have something on. It's on August the 15th. So, 15th of August. Now, that means... I'm just trying to think. Are they behind us? The Europeans, are they behind us? Anyway, work it out. Um, 15th of August. It's held in Europe. So whether we see it on the 16th, and that's America. Uh, tricky one. I can't work it out at the moment on the fly. But anyway, 15th of August in Europe. Uh, this is when it's going to be uh, when it's going to be streamed live. So that's something to look forward to, actually. I think that could be a great thing. It's going to be, is it next? is it next Saturday? should know because my wife's birthday is coming up on the 16th 
could be in trouble. Anyway, Airmate Live, Horizon Hobby Airmate Live. Looks like it's going to be a great thing. Eight cameras capturing the event action in Bavaria. So something to look forward to. That's it for the news this week. It's guest time, and this week we have a great guest, an awesome bloke that's been probably the most supportive of me out of anybody else in the industry. That is Mike O'Reilly. Uh, I go quite a way back with Mike and the Flat Out RC brand from the start, really. And uh, Mike's one of those guys that he's been in the industry a very, very long time. Uh, he founded O'Reilly Model Products and Model Flight with his father leo who was a well-known figure in the in the model community for for almost all his life here in australia and uh mike is one of those guys that still absolutely loves the hobby even after i think it's 40 or 45 or something years in business but uh he was born into the hobby you could say but the passion that he's got is still as strong as ever so uh i really rate that you know in a, in a business owner that uh you know brings us great products uh, that he actually loves to get out there and have a fly. So one of the key reasons why I wanted Mike on, not just because he's a great bloke, uh, was he's really big into the gliding scene uh, and has been for a long time. And gliding is something that I really enjoy and we haven't really talked much about on this podcast. So over to Mike O'Reilly, the gliding legend. Mike O'Reilly, thanks for joining me here on the Flat Out RC podcast. My absolute pleasure, Andrew, to join you. I've been listening to your podcast with a lot of enjoyment and interest. Well, Mike, you know how much respect I have for you. And um, a lot of people don't know that uh, this whole Flat Out OC journey, we have to blame Mike O'Reilly, really, because I did ring you up before I started on the magazine and, and got your opinion. And and um, we know that I'm crazy and do crazy things like starting magazines, but you supported me all the way. So before we get started, I just want to say thank you, Mike O'Reilly. You're a great man. I really appreciate the support you've always shown me. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, we need to promote the hobby. It's a whole lot of fun, but if we don't tell people about it, no one new is going to know about it. So print media, I think, still uh, has an important role to play. Yeah, oh, look, I'd love to still be doing the magazine, but it... Uh, it's just not to be, but I, I, like we've got these new ways like this podcast and everything, so we're still sharing the love. Now, yes. Mike, we're going to talk about uh, your industry side of the, the hobby that you've been involved in for, for a long time now, but before we do, I, I, I want to talk, uh, talk about your aero modelling uh, practices that have been happening for many years. Where did your journey in aero modelling begin? Uh, it began... Um when I was about five or six years old, my father was a modeler. He flew free flight at that stage. We're going back to uh, around the early 60s. And uh, he got me into, he, he went out flying every weekend and he took me with him. So I started with free flight models, flew balsa hand launch gliders, uh, A1 uh, free flight gliders, and uh, spent a lot of my youth chasing after his pre-flight models that used to go downwind in thermals. So that was uh, that was the beginning of my modelling career. So you had a lot of practice and you, you were pretty fit then when you were younger. Uh, yeah, when I was younger, I was a lot fitter than uh, the 
age brings, but uh, no, really good memories of going to national championships in the Christmas, New Year holidays, uh, different parts of Australia, and uh, competing in the junior free flight events, and then uh, chasing after my dad's A2 gliders and his Wakefields and his F1A power models downwind over fences and through paddocks and putting up with the elements. So you can say that you had no choice but uh, to get into aero modelling then? Yes, it was in my genes and uh, until I got a little bit older and I started playing football and cricket, which would tie up some Saturdays, but uh, we would go out to a flying field every Saturday, uh, every Sunday, and then uh, Radio Control came along, I think roughly the mid-60s, and uh, yeah, Dad branched out into that, and then uh, I started flying Radio Control gliders was my first uh, foray into radio control. Um, and with the free flight background, I think uh, that was a, a real asset, having an understanding of how to trim a plane, how it should fly when you're not putting any control inputs into it, was a really good grounding for flying RC gliders. So uh, these RC gliders that you got into in the early days, were they, well, first of all, how were you launching them? Uh, Hanto, so uh, which was a carryover from flying free flight. Yeah. So I towed up my dad's gliders for a while, and then uh, he and our friends would uh, someone would tow your glider up, and if you were good, it would stay up, and if you weren't, it would come down, and you need someone else to tow it back up. So were they were they like the uh, a one channel kind of setup or two channel? What were you what were you working with? Uh, two channel. I didn't ever fly with um, reeds or galloping ghost or anything like that. I flew um, with proportional controls from day one. So I missed the excitement of the early days of radio control. So two channel gliders is what I started with. See, I've been reading, a friend of mine gave me a bunch of magazines from UK magazines from sort of 65 to maybe 1970. And so it's yep. all ads mainly for radio gear. The, well, the entire magazine might have had three articles in it, but everything else was an ad for radio gear. And they're amazing documents, absolutely a totally yep. different era. But I look back and I think it would be so stressful flying some of those early, you know, one-channel click-button radio systems. That are, like I'm, I'm sort of glad that I missed that because it just sounds too difficult. But I suppose if you were coming from free flight, it was a great novelty that now you could have some level of control over the um, the plane. It was amazing. Yes. Yeah, a free flight plane, if it's well trimmed and working properly, it will fly. So uh, adding radio control was a bonus. It just meant maybe you didn't have to run so far to collect it at the end of the flight. And it just it, it grew from there. The technology got better and better, smaller, lighter, which opened up a whole lot of possibilities for for RC planes, and it worked really well in gliders. Yeah. Now, with the gliders back then, what were, were some of the models that you were flying? Uh, my my favourite plane from that era was a Grautner Amigo. So we uh, we were bringing Grautner models into the country, and they made a really nice two metre glider with a fairly heavily cambered wing called the Amigo. And uh, I built that in our shed and covered it uh, very early on, one of the first applications of solar film. And uh, that, that was a, a really nice glider. 
then uh, branched out into bigger and what I thought at the time were fancier things, some multiplex alpha, super alpha, LS1, um, getting into the early, mid and late 70s at that stage. But early on, two metre, rudder elevator, um, the Grautner Amigo uh, holds still a very special spot in my memory banks. Yeah, now we're going to really delve into your gliding career um, because you have been an avid uh, glider pilot for, for a long, long time. But so you you did focus on gliders. Did you get into any of the powered aircraft as well at that time or not? Or was it just purely uh, gliding? It flew a little bit of power. Dad, um, he flew power planes as well and he got into scale. But um, I predominantly flew gliders. But I remember I built a, a SIG Super Chipmunk. Oh, yeah. Had an in your, I don't know, in your 25, something like that, two-stroke uh, engine in it. And uh, I was really happy with how that turned out. And so I was reasonably competent four-channel power flyer. But back in the 70s, it was primarily gliding. I've been a fairly competitive person in, in a lot of what I do in my life. And there were a, a lot of glider competitions. Um, and yeah, I, I just enjoyed flying in those and competing and a uh, little bit of success from time to time. Well, look, I, I think you're, you're talking yourself down because I keep on seeing your name appearing in the results of glider comp. So you're still up there as one of the top pilots going around. Am I right in saying that you did compete in some world championships for gliding or is that incorrect? I can't remember. Uh, no, that you. is true. We, um, went or I went with, uh, few other Aussies we had a three three person team that flew at the first world F3B championships which was in South Africa just out of Pretoria in 1977 and had to be a, a little bit careful in how we went about that because Australia wasn't uh, happy about any sporting ties with South Africa at the time because of apartheid and uh, so at that point in time we were not Aeromodeling wasn't classified as a sport, so we thought, well, we're not we're not prohibited from going, so we did go, and um, Australia came third as a team at that first World Championships, and I had the good fortune and a bit of luck and managed to come fifth as an individual, and then I went to the 79, 81, 83, and 85 World Championships for F3B. After that, then uh, I had three daughters, came in fairly quick succession. So I didn't go anywhere again until 2001 and uh, been to a, a few more since then. Um, but, yeah, the early days were probably my most successful. Um, but, yeah, been to quite a few world championships. Yeah, no, that's amazing. That's, um, that's a great feat, really, especially over such a long period of time. It just shows that uh, you're really into this uh radio control flying thing aren't you yeah yeah still going i i really do enjoy it it's um it is my number one hobby and uh, i get out flying as much as i can um still like competing and i still just like flying uh, a variety of airplanes but my my main passion is for rc gliders yeah that, that hasn't gone away okay now because you are a great glider pilot uh 
I want us to delve a bit deeper because you know, there's a lot of us out there that own gliders. Um, and for me, I always say that my passions in aeromodeling is aerobatics uh, and gliding are the two biggest things. Because for me, um, when I fly a glider, it's a bit like fishing. I can't see where that thermal is going to be and I live in hope and I'm always concentrating, even though everything's happening at a much slower pace than, say, flying aerobatics or flying a jet, my mind is very, very active and I've got a very active mind, as you know, Mike. But so yeah. it's something that I like. But what I find is that when I go and fly a glider, like many of us out there, it's almost like it is sheer luck whether we're going to get a thermal or not. When you go gliding and especially when you're competing, are you is it is it sheer luck or what what how do you go beyond that luck aspect to try to keep your glider up in the air well that's a how long is a piece of string sort of question but oh, i've got uh, hours here mike just go, let it let, let loose <laughs> just give us the the, the big the, let's focus on the big the big points yeah so it's not luck um luck plays a factor but um there are a whole lot of things that I think contribute to helping keep your glider up. And, and really that's what the competition side of it. And I think also the sport flying side of it is about making it go higher than it was when you launched it, be that via a, a winch or an aero toe or a bungee or an electric motor. So the first step is to get your glider flying well. It needs to be trimmed such that center of gravity surfaces are all aligned and that when you take your hands off the transmitter, the plane will fly itself. If it's diving, stalling, turning with no input from the pilot, you're making your life much, much harder because one of the secrets to detecting thermals is if the attitude of the plane changes, when you're not putting an input into it, it means the air is doing something. So if the glider starts sinking faster, then you're in sync. You need to fly out of that patch of air. If you're flying straight and level and the right-hand wingtip goes up in level flight, it probably means there's a thermal on the right-hand side of the glider. If the glider speeds up without sinking, you've flown through the middle of a thermal. So it's all about watching changes in how the glider is flying and you can't pick that if you're continually working the elevator, putting aileron or rudder input in to make it fly straight and level. So a lot of the early flights with the new glider are about trimming the glider so that it will fly for extended periods with your hands not moving the sticks. So when you talk about trimming, though, are you talking about getting in and putting trim in your radio or are you physically trimming the plane in any way, shape or form as well? Because I could imagine that putting in, you know, 15 clicks of aileron is probably not going to be great uh, great for you. You know, you've got a bit of aileron input happening. What is it? What do you mean by trimming the plane? Is it yeah, a little bit of both. Um, center of gravity is, is a variable that uh, you need to play with. Um, so, uh, it need, again, it needs to not be diving or climbing. So that's a combination of center of gravity and where the elevator setting is. You would hope with a, a well-designed glider that uh, with all the controls at neutral, then you leave the elevator alone and you play with the center of gravity. 
Um, I am a believer in doing what we call the dive test with the glider. So you get it to some altitude, put the nose down at about a 45 degree angle, and then take your hand off the sticks. If it dives even steeper, it's probably uh, you need to move the center of gravity forward. If it starts to pull out of that dive, it is a little bit nose heavy. So you need to move the center of gravity backwards. And then to the question of your aileron and rudder inputs, I hope you don't need 15 clicks of right aileron because it means a warp in the wing. But if it takes that to make it fly in a straight line, then you, you need to do that unless you're able to straighten the wing by shrinking the plastic covering or doing something to straighten it up. So, yeah, centre of gravity is really important um, that you get it in the sweet spot. A lot of gliders, uh, unless it's your own design, will come with the recommended centre of gravity range. And for the most part, that is a, that's something that you should follow with most of the gliders that are on the market nowadays. And then, yeah, build it straight, get it to fly straight, and then you're, you're in a much better position to pick where the thermals are. In a competition environment, given that you've got your glider well-trimmed, um, generally, we know that your turn to fly or the next heat that you will compete in starts in two or three minutes. And uh, we look at the ground signs as to what is happening around us before we're going to launch the glider. So we'll often take out um, long sort of fishing poles with a bit of a streamer on the top. So you're watching changes in wind direction, which might indicate a thermal has gone through and is going to be downwind when you launch your glider. You look for birds. Birds are really good indicators of thermals, unless they're when they're flapping a lot, that's a bad sign, um, which just means you don't fly where the bird is that's flapping a lot. Um, we look at what other pilots' aeroplanes are doing. So in a competition, we'll have at least one helper and if you're out sport flying, if someone is there with you and can see what other gliders are doing, if someone else is in a thermal, I'm not too proud to go and share that thermal. Um, it's telling you that there's something there. So there are, there are things that you can watch that are also indicators of where a thermal might be. Yeah, it's, it's amazing when you, when you, the way that you put it, you often think that gliding can be this sedate kind of uh flying experience but when you when you're being mindful of your surroundings and trying to be really tuned into your surroundings i suppose that your mind is is actively going all the time um when yes. when you go to these competitions um what, what does a typical glider competition look like i've, I've actually I, i've been to one of the uh what is the ales the um uh, altitude limited uh soaring kind of competition that the Varms Club down here in Melbourne ran once and thought it was unbelievable. I've actually, there's a video on my YouTube and the Flat Out RC YouTube channel on it. But what does a typical, uh, you know, a glider competition involve? It varies a little bit, I guess, on the number of competitors. But uh, at the bigger ones and every year for the last 40 plus years, we've held an event at Gerildery Racecourse, except for this year. COVID-19 fixed that, but we would get 50 to 80 competitors 
and uh, generally sort of divided up into teams of four or five people. So we'd have 20 kind of positions across a, a straight line that's facing into the wind and uh, electric winches would be lined up and we'd launch 15 aeroplanes at once. They'd go to maybe 200 metres high and then try and do a 10-minute flight and land uh, as precisely as possible on a spot that's uh, set out behind the launching area. So uh, it's about staying up for a, a set amount of time with penalties for going over or landing short of the 10 minutes and then bonus points for landing as closely as possible and measured in uh, 10 centimetre increments to that spot. So, you know, perfect score is 10 minutes and no seconds and landing within 10 centimetres of a predetermined spot. And we're talking a three and a half to 3.8 metre glider weighing two kilos that you're trying to land precisely against time and distance. So that, that takes yeah. a reasonable amount of skill. You'd have to uh, be really in tune with your glider and its performance and glide capabilities, wouldn't you? Yes, you need to know how long it takes to, you know, to come in and land, that you, you don't want to be late, you don't want to be early. Um, the modern high-performance competition gliders tend to be six-function, so two flaps, two ailerons, rudder and elevator. So you're, you're using a whole lot of controls to, to make that plane fly and land uh, as well as it can. So there's a lot of mixing and stuff happening in the transmitter. And that's part of the trimming process with these modern composite uh, high-performance gliders to make it do all of the elements of launching, soaring and landing to do that really well. Yeah, I, I, you've actually led me into the, my, my next question, which, which is talking about the, the different types of gliders that we see now and even going back many years to what we see today that... You know, we can buy foam gliders, balsa gliders, composite gliders, you know, carbon fiber gliders. Uh, the modern competition glider is just a work of art. I, I, I Actually, I was in your office and I saw one of, the, one of the gliders sitting there and I just fell in love with the look of it. It's just, they are a work of art. Uh, they're not the cheapest, you know, models going around, but, you know, they're not too, too bad, at, you know, for what they are, but... When you look at a modern-day carbon fibre competition glider, how does it compare to a glider from, say, 30 years ago? Oh, it, it, massive change. And I, I guess that's that's happened in a whole lot of elements of life. If you look at a 30, I mean, I'm going back to, I'm talking 50 years back when I flew that uh, Graupner Amigo. That was all balsa with a little bit of plywood in it. Um pretty ordinary performance compared to what they are now but over 50 years you, if you look at the motor car and lots of other things there's been huge change but the difference in performance uh, it, it's a factor of 10 I think Andrew uh, in whichever criteria you want to use to measure it it launches higher it will fly further it has a better glide angle it has a better minimum rate of sync it's stronger um, you don't have to build it, which is kind of good um, for us busy people. Um, yeah, it, it's chalk and cheese. They are so much better. But having said that, there is an emerging interest in uh, 
a new class that's come out of Europe, which is for balsa aeroplanes that are two meter wingspan with rudder elevator and spoilers. Um, a simple electric launch to a hundred meter altitude to fly for five minutes. And it's sort of going back to a more simpler competition, a simpler airframe that is cheaper. It brings the element of building the model back into it, um, brings the price point down dramatically, um, but still leaves the challenge of having to find a thermal to, to complete the five minute flight. So whilst we've got some absolutely gorgeous full composite gliders there that have amazing performance, the brushless motors and LiPo batteries have made two meter electric gliders have really, really good performance. So that that's a really encouraging thing to see that it doesn't have to be the three or $4,000 glider to, to have fun, to enjoy gliding, to fly in a competition. Yeah. And that's what I, uh, I loved about the, the, the little competition that I went to, that there was a mixture of aircraft, everything from like a foamy radiant to, yeah. you know, a big uh, competition spec carbon fiber glider. And, uh, it, 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 I thought it was just an awesome competition in, in that format They that the task was to fly for five minutes then land on the spot and yep. so what ended up happening is you had a lot of turnover there were maybe 15 pilots or you know, yeah, close to 15 pilots I'd say and so they'd have you know split them up into two groups and then just rotate and so you had this competition that was really fast moving that you were always you know if, if you weren't helping time somebody else and help somebody else it was your turn and every five minutes you were rotating and yeah, the competitiveness of just even uh, well, the best glider flight that I've ever experienced was actually with the Radian Pro glider. And yep. I got in a thermal and the thing did not want to come down. It just kept on going up and up and up and up. And yep. I was just, it blew my mind how this thing could stay up. Cause I'd flown some balsa models, you know, many, many years ago, but this thing was just absolutely phenomenal. Uh, you know, in its performance, it was just a, a foamy. Yeah, uh, it's a really good feeling that that first sort of really good thermal flight is, you know, you've beaten nature. You've you've yeah. made, be it a balsa plane or a foam plane or whatever, you've made it go up. And, you know, just like a bird, it's sort of man versus nature. And, uh, yeah, it, it's really, really rewarding. Well, I always loved, you know, when I really think about it, it was gliders that I became fascinated with in the 80s when I was a young kid. And that's uh, that was my entry into the hobby was through, you know, building an Aeroflight Albatross glider. Yep. Um, but I think one of the things I remember is seeing it was a Mitsubishi Magna ad where they had a model glider flying. And they flew it into the back of the car. Now, that ad actually is on YouTube somewhere. I've seen it. And I remember it was this white model with these red wingtips. And I, from that seeing that ad, I had this fascination, especially when we, we drove into, you know, with my family, we go skiing or go in the country somewhere. I had this fascination about wanting to fly a glider in remote paddocks yeah. out in the bush. And still to this day, and I, I want to know whether you have to be honest with me and tell me whether you do that this as well. Is that when you're driving in the countryside, do you see a paddock and go, that'd be a great spot to fly a glider? I just to go back to the Magna ad, just interestingly, we yep. built a model that was used uh, for that ad. So um, that was done here in Adelaide. And, yeah. Uh, 
bit of history back there. Yes, so we were involved in that. And then um, later, my daughter, when she was about two years old, featured in another Mitsubishi ad. So oh, really, we drove Mitsubishi's there for a while. But when I'm when I'm driving around, I I I look more for slope soaring sites that yes. uh, you know you go past yeah. it or a, a cliff or somewhere and think, oh wow, that would just be so good to to toss a glider off. Um, we're very fortunate here in Adelaide that the the club I've been long associated with, Southern Soaring League, has a hundred acre property south of Adelaide that is flat and open and is in his hours and is just a great place to fly thermal gliders. But looking out for a new slope soaring site uh, all over the world, I, I keep my eyes open and think, you know, one day I'll be back. I'll do this. I'll do that. Yeah. No, yeah. I yeah, I, I must admit I do that as well. There's, I've got a, I've got a holiday house up in the country, and I've actually identified a slope, and it's almost like a horseshoe shape. And I'm thinking, gee, this, this thing could work in multiple different uh, wind directions. But the problem is, it's never any wind. It's amazing. <laughs> There's just not enough wind. And even I, I do a bit of skiing, and I go up to Mount Buller, and I keep on thinking, oh, there's a bunch of slopes here that I want to bring a glider to and and fly off but um and it's 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 interesting i see these paddocks and these fields and i'm not thinking about flying a powered plane it's just something about wanting to fly a glider in that environment is sort of it just makes sense to to do that and i'm fortunate that where my where my house is i've got access to a a ridge um and look if it was blowing a gale you could probably slope soar off one side of it but i i love flying gliders up there because it's just a beautiful setting you know, I've got yeah. Mount Buller in the backdrop and I'm in a valley and it's just like this was meant for gliding. And so that's where I take my gliders to go up there and uh, have a throw. I'm, I'm getting excited just thinking about it, Mike. Sounds good. But well, sl- I hope you get up there soon. Well, well, I, well yeah, I'm stuck. You might mention yes. lockdown here in Melbourne. But the slope soaring is another aspect as well. And that's something that I, I first tried um, last year. Uh, I was... I love the concept of slope soaring and I'd had my eye out to see, you know, to, to get one. And I managed to get one for a review and my good friend, Ido Segev, um, I, I, I gave him the testing duties and said, come on, let's go. And, and we went just down the road to the beach kind of thing and found this, um, I wouldn't really call it a slope. It was, it was a little bump in the ground. It was about five meter little, uh, little hill. And uh, it was, it just, it, I just could not wait to get back. And, you know, it's just once we get out of this lockdown thing, that's definitely something that I want to do more of. Have you have you done a lot of slope soaring in your time? Yes, not so much recently, but uh, yeah, early uh, when when I was married, we had the good fortune to live at Hallett Cove, and there was a really good slope that was about five hundred meters from our house. And uh, Hallett Cove Conservation Park works really well in a southwesterly wind, so we go slope soaring probably twenty. 20 day, 20 weekends a year oh, uh, yeah. and did that but prevailing conditions have changed and it tends to be more a southeasterly now oh, really at of um climate change or something has has changed how that works but uh, once a year we go on the australia day long weekend to a slope called tapanapa which is down south in the deep creek conservation park it looks out with kangaroo island in the distance and uh, yeah, we fly down there. Um, haven't ever done much slope soaring competition, but just sport flying, scalies, 
uh, fast aerobatic ships. Again, it's just you versus nature. You know, I really like the fact that there's no noise. It's clean. It's quiet. You can just get out there. And even on a slope where there's lift, if the wind is blowing in the right direction, you know the lift is going to be there. But how high can you get? How fast can you go? Can you find a thermal? Um, the, the challenge is there. And I, I say to people uh, talking about gliders, model gliders, they're easy to fly, but they're very hard to fly well. True. And every flight is going to be different and you want to maximise time in the air, how high you go, all, all of those things so that every flight is a challenge and every flight is different. Yeah. One thing I found with the slope soaring is it was it was almost a very social thing. We, we went back. Ido came with me again and his brother was with us. And we took my, my slopey and threw it off and it was, there was hardly any wind. It was literally, we worked out, it probably blowing maybe 12 knots maximum, even probably around 10 knot mark. And But it was more of a catch-up, the three of us just having a catch-up. Before we knew it, it was an hour and 15 minutes that we were flying the plane and what we were doing, we all fly the same mode. So we just hand the transmitter. And, you know, it was almost like we were flying, but we were also having a chat and having a catch-up at the same time. And we could do that. It wasn't as if we had to land the plane because the fuel was going to run out and, there were, you know, there was no noise and it was just a nice uh, setting. So that was the other big draw card for me is that you can sit there and have a chat and just fly up and down and you can go for over an hour if you want. And yeah. it's... Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing yeah. thing. So slope soaring. Now, let's talk about some of the gliders that you're currently you're uh, currently flying. So, when you go out to the fields for for a glide, is there one predominant model that you're taking with you, or various types? Um, I I go sport flying a bit, but I probably if I want to go for a social fly, I'll take out an electric model and go to a club that's closer. But if I'm going gliding, uh, uh, the strong area of interest all over the world now is a class called F5J, yeah. which is electric powered gliders. Yeah. Um, same large composite glider, 3.7 metre span with a, a small electric motor in the nose that gets it up to altitude. So I've got, uh, I've got a, I've probably got too many, but uh, models from Samba in the Czech Republic um, I really like, and I've got a Pike Perfection and a Pike Dynamic that are both um, 3.7 metre, six channel, full composite gliders, and uh, I'll take them out um, to fly. I've been flying Samba gliders for a long time, so they've just slowly evolved, gotten better and better. They fly, they've gotten better so they don't fly the same, but they have the same inherent traits and, and they're made the same way. So I'm very familiar with them. So Pike Dynamic is my go-to aeroplane at the moment. Have you got any scale gliders? Uh, yes, I have. Um, I've had scale gliders for a long time. My father got a really big SB10 out of Germany that was 7.3 metre wingspan sort of back in the 80s, it was was pretty big. And I've had scale gliders ever since. Uh, currently, I have three. Um, I have a half-scale ASW-28 that was built by Bill Bland in Sydney quite a while ago now from a LET models kit out of Germany. So that's 
seven and a half meter span because the full size one's a 15 meter standard class glider. But being half scale, the fuselage is half, it, it's big, big cross section has a lot of presence in the sky. I have a 6.75 meter Antares, which is from a Czech manufacturer called Baudis. And I'm just finishing up uh, Diana 2 from Baudis, which is a five and a half meter full composite glider. So I like scale gliding. Um, they look good. They fly really, really well. And looking at uh, doing a bit of GPS triangle racing, which is bringing the latest miniaturized GPS technology into scale gliders. Yeah, it's amazing. The, yeah, I, I love the look of scale gliders. And uh, a friend of mine's got one of the old Hangar 9. Oh, they've got four-meter wingspan. Yeah, ASW. Is it ASW, is it? Or the, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that's sitting brand new in his uh, in his bedroom. And every time I see it, I say that is going to be mine one day. <laughs> I want that. I want that glider because I just love the look of some of these scale gliders. Yes, so fantastic. The now, so gliding, of, of course, has been a big passion. But one of the other areas that you've been into is jets as well. Uh, you know, you've owned a, a number of different turbine jets um, over the time. Are you still involved with jets at all? Yes, I haven't had the chance to fly them because the coronavirus has caused the cancellation of a, a couple of recent jet meetings. But yeah, we got into jets really fairly early. Had a had a JPX turbine that came from Kevin Dodd. We put it on some Italian aeroplane we got, but in the end, after it was all finished, we bloody chickened out. It was so heavy and it wasn't very big. I thought this is gonna fly like a brick. Yeah. So we moved that on, but we had one of the very first kangaroos that came into the country with a ram turbine that came from Florida and flew that in the late 90s from memory. Um, and, yeah, had uh, had a series of uh, jets since then. Um, had a really, really nice Skymaster Viper jet, big 2.2-metre one that I flew for about eight years till unfortunately airframe fatigue bit it and uh, it, it met its death a couple of years ago. But um, Seb Ardavanti um, got a, a Tomahawk Futura at the moment and a Vixen and a really nice um, scratch-built frame fade at the moment, Gloucester Javelin, that oh, really? late father started construction on before he passed away and uh, we got that finished and flew that for the first time about five years ago but that's a, a little bit of sentimental value and, and something a little bit different see it, it seems like you've really enjoyed the sport jets i do i uh I, I must admit i'm not much of an aerobatic flyer it's not something that ever really appealed to me so sport airplanes uh, sport jets uh, are my thing. I don't particularly like really heavily loaded planes that I want them to fly nicely and uh, and be a bit easier to fly, have a good speed range. And so really heavily loaded planes don't necessarily fit that bill. So the jets have all been uh, bigger, lighter, um, and I think have, have flown pretty well. I, I just enjoy the the smell, the sound and the power. It's so completely different to flying a glider. Mm. 
but uh, it, it just it's a real buzz. Yeah, no, I've I've got a a Skymaster Viper Jet two meter that I've got sitting there that's ready to go, and like you, I can't get out because of the whole COVID thing. But uh, that'll be my first foray. And like you, I'm the same. I don't want one of those jets that you got to bring in in a million miles an hour and hope for the best. It's going to get hit the ground at the right speed. So that's it's, why I've I've gone with the sport jet because I think that that's sort of right up my alley. So I can't wait to uh, to get out there. Now, uh, talking to you, it's not just about talking about your activities in the hobby because I'd uh, just be wasting a great opportunity because uh, the O'Reilly name has been around a long time in the industry and you're currently the owner of a uh, model flight business and also a distribution business, O'Reilly Model Products. And pretty much I rate you as one of the the, the, the best uh, hobby businesses going around and that's based on range service and and everything now congratulations because i believe it's the 45th year it's 45 years in the industry with uh is it model flight or what was the the name of the business 45 years ago uh we started model flight 45 years ago and um the wholesale business back then had a pretty boring name it was called l o'reilly proprietary limited yeah uh, which doesn't roll off the tongue very nicely, and it's got apostrophes and full stops everywhere. <laughs> so uh, we we turned that into O'Reilly Model Products and OMP about fifteen years ago, yeah. just to be easier to market and uh, easier to say, and much easier for Japanese to pronounce. So um, yeah, we've been in the industry a really long time. Um, prior to that. My father was involved uh, in the modelling industry uh, whilst he was working as an engineer and he was the Australian importer for Merco engines back in about 1956. So uh, the family history in the industry goes back a very long way, but uh, serious full-time for the last 45 years. Yeah, well, your father, Leo, was a a very, very prominent figure in the... uh in the hobby and in the industry uh, and he's, I think, well-remembered by many, many modellers. I remember as a young kid seeing Leo O'Reilly's name, you know, in photographs as well. So, um, you know, I, I think that your dad and then flowing on to you, you've really helped drive the the hobby in Australia. And, I, you know, I'm always a big fan of the industry and in that they give us the opportunity to enjoy our hobby. And it sounds very simplistic, but it's, it's true because a lot of the businesses even nowadays don't make a lot of money, but they, they're doing it for their love of the hobby. Now, you started the business, from memory, you started the business when you were sort of straight out of university. Is that correct? It was with your father. You said, okay, let's go and do this full time. Yeah. Uh, I was a uni student doing mechanical engineering. I didn't know, I wasn't particularly passionate about that. Should have done aeronautical engineering and gone to Melbourne to study, but I didn't. Um, Dad wasn't that happy with the engineering firm he'd been with for quite some time. And we had contacts from uh, out of Asia and America for different brands of equipment. So uh, we decided that I would open the retail store and Dad went full-time with the distribution of various products that uh, we had access to at the time, and it's just steadily grown from there. Yeah, and you've you've really, over the time, I think one of the things that you've always had is really good quality products. You weren't 
uh, playing at the the low end of the market. You were you were just looking for good decent product to to bring to the market. What are some of those brands that you've had over the years that have that have come through the the O'Reilly uh, businesses? It's a pretty long list, Andrew. Just give um, me the big ones, Mike, because we, we you know a lot of the big ones people might might not be old enough to know about, but in those early days we were the agent for Space Commander Radios, um, IM products from a gentleman in Japan called Isao Matsui, who was big on giant scale aerobatics and had a range of accessories and model aeroplanes. Um, we were the first Thunder Tiger agent in the world. Um, so we had Thunder Tiger for quite some time. We were the multiplex agent for a number of years and was really pleased to kind of get that back um, from when model engines closed a few years back. Um, Space Commander became micro electronics. And then uh, we were for 38 years, the JR agent for Australia and uh, worked with them from very humble beginnings to, to be, I think at the time, the number one radio brand in Australia for, for quite some period. Um, we've worked really closely with Horizon Hobbies since the early 1990s. So we're, we're coming up next year will be 30 years of working with them and the various brands that they've developed over that period. It started with Hangar 9 Aircraft and then uh, Spectrum Radios came along uh, back in 2000. So we're talking 20 years ago, the first electric ready-to-fly aeroplane hit the market and it was a model called the Firebird XL and it came out of a pretty small factory in Shanghai and it was plastic and foam with a brushed motor, nickel metal hydride battery and two-channel control um, but it was completely built, came in the box ready to go and uh, we took a bit of a gamble and bought a very large quantity of those into a not very big warehouse that we had at the time. And uh, that was the start of the electric model revolution, I think. Um, we'd had some electric planes before that made out of balsa, but this was ready to fly out of the box, radio installed, everything included. And that, that really was a turning point for the industry globally. And it was really important for our business. Yeah, well, you've had... Um... You know, over 45 years of business, you would have seen a lot of uh, ups and downs in the hobby. And once um, you told me that your dad and yourself thought that uh, towards the end of the 80s into the early 90s, you thought your business was doomed because you know, there was an aging demographic and you were losing members and, uh, you know, through, through passing away. But uh, what, you know, obviously through the 70s and 80s, so we'll start with that sort of time period, what did the hobby look like back then? How vibrant was it? Well, looking back now, it wasn't vibrant at all. But um, it really? was just so different. But back in 1975, we, we chose to call our retail business model flight because there was no such thing as a model car or a model helicopter. So model flight kind of made sense. Um, and that that was our background in the hobby. We, we flew model aeroplanes. But... Um, it was balsa wood. There was no fiberglass anything, no plastic anything, no foam anything, and you had to build it yourself. 
So our customers had to be aviation enthusiasts. They had to be good with their hands. They had to have space at home to build the plane. They had to have the time to do it and then have the, I guess, the mental fortitude to cope with it potentially crashing. But that makes for a pretty small percentage of the population. Um, through the 90s, then uh, Balsa ready to fly aeroplanes out of Taiwan started to appear. And that opened up the hobby then to uh, aviation enthusiasts who had the money and wanted to do it, but they didn't have to build it. So that cut hours and hours out of the time to make the decision to get into the hobby and, and have that first flight. Because prior to that, it was three months. You get all excited and I'm going to take up flying model airplane. But hey, presto, you got to build it. And that took time. So for a lot of people, the, the enthusiasm waned before they got the plane to the flying field. So ready to fly or ARF Balsa planes helped. Then, uh, then we saw um, RC model cars came in the 80s. Yeah, and to me, uh, the Frog, the Hornet, that type of thing was a real boon to our business. Um, they, they sold in the hundreds and thousands. So that brought a whole lot of new people in. Very few of them graduated to model planes, but it brought customers through the door buying RC products. So that was really good for the industry and good for us personally. And then, as I said, with the Firebird XL that came in the year 2000, and that was August 2000. Um, so I remember the, uh, the container arrived and it was the first container we had ever received. And I was overseas at the World F3B Championships in the Czech Republic. And I was making very expensive phone calls, you know, did it come? Did it come? Are they okay? Will they fit in the warehouse? Um, it was pretty exciting for the time. And then uh, we've just seen the advent of foam, uh, the amazing advances with uh, RC in miniaturization, reliability, 2.4 gig operation that's brought to the, the hobby available to so many more people at a much lower real money cost. Uh, the chances of success are, are almost guaranteed if you buy the right sort of plane and you, you buy it this morning and fly it this afternoon. Um, at the same time, we, we still have, you know, balsa planes. Um, there's been an increase in interest in kits, uh, which has come back um, with the advent of coronavirus lockdown but Balsa ARFs uh, are still really popular. So the hobby is much broader than it ever used to be back in the early days. We only had planes and we only had kits. Now planes, helicopters, cars, boats, um, kits, ready to ARF, ready to fly out of all different materials at, to, to, and to cater for all different price points. You can fly it in your park or you go down to the to the field and fly something that's five metre wingspan and weighs 20 kilos and has 120cc gasoline engine in it. So it's, uh, it is amazing what, what's available now. It is, and it, I think sometimes we hear about, you know, declining participation, the doom and gloom, but, you know, I wrote an article once saying, you know, um, are these the best times ever? And because there's always this... Uh, 
difference in opinion that are people that have been around the hobby for a long time think that the good old days were back in the 70s and 80s building building kits and you know you're not a true aero modeler unless you're building kits but I think now with the choice that we've got, the reliability of the product, I think it's actually more affordable than it's ever been. Because I remember reading Airborne magazine in the 80s and thinking, oh, I'm never going to be able to afford that that transmitter. But now that same the, the functionality in that transmitter, it's probably you can get for $50, $50 from somewhere. But um, but I just think that it is, if you're an aero model, it's one of the greatest eras to be living in because of that choice and the quality of the components and uh, reliability that we've got. And like you said, you used to have to build your plane, hope that it, you did a good job, take it to the field and hope that you didn't crash it because you just spent three months building the damn thing. And um, there are some people that enjoy the building side then there's others that you know, enjoy the flying side and some you know enjoy both, of course. But it's that time commitment, I think, of having ARS and electric aircraft ready to fly and um, that really helps a lot of us. I know it's helped me a lot to keep me, keep me going in between yes. everything else that I'm doing. Now, you do have, you mentioned you've got a very good type with Horizon Hobby and, you know, I've had a few few Horizon Hobby people. I've had, you know, Peter Goldsmith and Ali Machinchi on the uh, on the podcast and they were uh, unbelievable to talk with, really enjoyed the conversation I had with them. With Horizon Hobby, uh, you've got a great range of products. How is it working with a large organization like that when it comes to procuring stock and things like that? Because I think a lot of, we hobbyists don't understand what happens behind the scenes, but from a business perspective, without giving away any confidential secrets, what's it like working with a big brand like that? Uh, it's been really good, Andrew. Um, so we have a relationship that's coming up for 30 years and uh, I'm probably the only common link to who we dealt with back at Horizon 30 years ago. There's been... Uh, People have aged and people have left the, the organisation there, but there's been, you know, continuity throughout that period. I think um, one of the really good things is that their, their sort of business ethos is that, you know, it, it's a hobby and they want to provide good products that make, make people enjoy themselves and want to continue in the hobby. They, they're not much as we try not to be, they're not looking to turn a dollar and, and make a profit today. It's about offering a good product that will work reliably and provide enjoyment and hopefully inspire that customer to continue and inspire other people who see the product in use or talk to that customer to, to want to do the same thing. And they've, they've had staff... Uh, throughout that period who are very good modelers, very good engineers, very good designers and just decent people um, who want to do the right thing by their customer and, and by the company. And they've pushed uh, the boundaries. They've, I think, uh, tried to use new technology wherever there was a, a fitting, a good use for it. And they've They've done a lot of innovating over the years and they really have had a fantastic range of products that we, you know, they work. Um, they've been very transparent with us in, you know, what, what their plans are, what's coming. Um, if there's a problem with a product, they own up to it. They've had over the years, you know, there've been a few recalls 
they've been um, you know they'll do a software upgrade really quickly if there's a bug they you know they take ownership of what they do um, with a very long-term outlook to, to being in the hobby for the long run they have survived um, for a very long time they're celebrating 35 years in the industry this year and um, a lot of their rivals from those early days are, are no longer in the industry. So that that is a, a tribute to, I think, how well they've managed the business and how well they, they have done at offering products that, that consumers want and will enjoy. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I think they're a very professional outfit and always trying to maintain a, a good quality level um, and, and their consistency across across everything that they do is very good. You, you know you're not buying a, 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 an unreliable model when you're, you're buying something that Horizon Hobbies behind. But you've also, you know, if you we look at what you've got today as far as brands, you've got some, some of the, the best brands going around with Seagull and Phoenix and uh, Jewel Sky, High Tech, uh, OS Engines. Uh, you know, you've really got uh, almost the cream of the crop um, that you're bringing to the market in Australia, which is which is phenomenal. What do you attribute the longevity of the business to be? Like, what what brought that all about? Because we've seen a lot of changes in the industry even in the past two years, three years. There's been massive amounts of changes, businesses changing hands, businesses ceasing, and that kind of thing. How have you lasted forty five years? Uh, there's some element of good luck and just being in the right place at the right time. But um, Andrew, my father and, and then myself, we worked really hard on building good relationships right through the, I guess, the, the, the chain that we work on relationships with our suppliers. We want to get to know them. We go to the factories. We meet the people in the dispatch area who load the containers. Um, we've worked really hard at having a good, honest relationship with our dealers throughout Australia. And, you know, sadly, some of them have been affected by GFC and coronavirus, but um, others stand up and, and have done well. So we work closely with them. And as modellers, um, and we've always had a, a core group of people on staff who are modellers, so we understand, we try and understand and have a passion for the products we're selling um, so that we've been able to, I think, make informed choices with what stock to buy, what products to carry, and then how to go about supporting it with uh, end, end users and the dealers out there who have technical questions or are looking for a, a spare part to keep it in the air. Um, I still really passionate about the hobby and about going flying and I don't want to let down equally passionate people around Australia who've bought one of our products we want them to work we want them to go out and enjoy using it so yeah I think the passion for the hobby um, trying to have good quality products you said early in this interview that that we have seemed to have managed to sell decent quality products we have always tried to do that um, so we've had well-known reputable brand names um, we've worked with some of the newer smaller suppliers to help them do a better job and uh, 
the end result is that, yeah, somehow we've survived for 45 years. Yeah, well, congratulations once again. I think uh, that's a massive feat, 45 years to keep a business going like you have. Now, last time I saw you, you said that your plans were to not work as much and fly more. Now, how are those plans going? Yeah, well, I put all everything in place. Um, have a really good uh, team uh, at our head office and at our bricks and mortar store. Uh, Jamie, our uh, another director and general manager, has uh, picked up the ball and run really hard with it, and he's driven our strength and uh, our online platform is very much been driven by Jamie and that's that's been important in uh, in the last few years especially in the last six months with coronavirus um, so Andrew I think when I last saw you I wanted to work a bit less fly more and travel more um, the traveling is just about impossible at the moment um, overseas trips are not happening and even uh, our trips interstate to fly in glider competitions, to go to jet meetings, to go and fly giant scale pylon races, which I also pretty passionate about. Uh, everything has been cancelled this year. So I actually find myself probably having done more work than I'd planned and we've been pretty busy. So I'm not sitting at home twiddling my thumbs, but uh, this year has had uh, had a few changes imposed upon us by coronavirus, yeah. unfortunately. That's true. You know what I love about you, Mike, is you know with some of my dealings in the with uh, industry players over the years, they're often they were second generation operators of the business. You know their fathers had a passion for the hobby, developed the business, and then passed it on. And they didn't have that same passion uh, as say what their father did. But when it comes to aero modeling, you're as passionate now as what you were 45 years ago, and it. it Actually, when you spend time with you, it shines through as well that you this strong passion. I remember when you, you picked me up from the airport in Adelaide when I came to see you and you had to stop in at the flying club and show me the flying club on the way to, to the office. And I thought, man, this guy loves the hobby. You know, like you're really into it, which I don't think people, uh, people that know you know that you like that. But around Australia, I don't think they appreciate how much you actually love going to fly model aeroplanes and being involved with it all. So well done. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If I talk to people I meet, you know, what do you do? I work in a, a wholesale retail business selling model airplanes and, you know, and I fly them and, and, and often they ask, you know, aren't you sick of it? You do it five days a week or six days a week at work and then you want to go out and do more of it. And uh, the sadly, perhaps of my wife and family, but the answer is yes, I do. Yeah. I just, I really enjoy flying model aeroplanes. Yeah, no, well, uh, and, th th and it's amazing that you, that passion is still there, even though it's your day job as well. Often it can, it can you know, they always say a great way to uh, ruin your hobby is get involved with the business side of it. And uh, But you've managed to, to stay strong, so I really, really admire that aspect of you. So well done. Now, to finish up, there's a question that I ask everybody. And it could be a hard one for you to answer because you've probably owned and, and flown a lot of different aircraft in your time. What has been your favourite model? Yes, you gave me a bit of forewarning on this question and uh, it doesn't make it any easier. <laughs> yeah. um, I've had I've had the really good fortune to, to have a lot of model aeroplanes in my 
probably 60 years of uh, of flying model aeroplanes and wow, has it changed from the little simple uh, flash balsa hand launch glider that my uncle taught how to build and fly to the fleet of aircraft I have now. Can, can I get away with giving you two answers? Okay. Two Just because it's you, Mike, you can give me two. Go. Yeah. So the first one is uh, the Graupner Amigo that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Yeah. It was a plane that I built myself from a, a, a Graupner German-made kit that wasn't that great a kit back then. It was belt sanded and die cut or die crunched. Um, and I was really, really proud of how I put it together. Uh, it wasn't it by any way the first plane I built, but I took it uh, with my family and a couple of friends um, to the Geelong Nationals in, I don't know, 1970, 1971, and uh, flew in the RC glider event there. And as a 15-year-old, I managed to win, which was pretty amazing because I hadn't yeah. been flying for that long. So that, that plane is really special. And then... I've flown a, a, quite a few of moulded F3B open thermal F3J gliders from a, a company called Samba in the Czech Republic. And one of them was a plane called the Pike Perfect, which is about a three and a half metre moulded glider. And I'd had Pike Superior, Pike Plus, various others before that that were really good. And the Pike Perfect, when I first got it, I thought, you know, this this flies like a dog. It, it wasn't good, didn't like it at all, but then got my head around how to set it up. It was different to the ones before that. And um, I flew that for about three years, around 2008. And um, I put a really big effort into practising, practising, practising in 2008 in preparation for going to the World Championships in Turkey and uh, did more flying in the lead-up to the event at Geraldry in June, and the World Championships were late July. And uh, I think it's sad to say that I peaked for the event at Geraldry and crashed and burned at the event. In <laughs> but um, that I got that plane flying really, really well, and I just knew everything about it and and you know how to get 100 percent out of it so that uh, had a real i had three of them actually but that my favorite one was yellow and blue and uh that that thing flew like it was on rails could just go up on the the sniff of an oily rag and it was pretty special airplane yeah well well done the uh some really nice aircraft there now mike uh, 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 very well done on 45 years and a big thank you to you uh, both you know, on behalf of the hobby for, for doing what you've done for so many years but also personally for the, work, the, the assistance that you've always offered me really really appreciate it and I just hope now that uh, you can get some more flying in like you know get back to that plan once we get over this COVID thing that you can get back to spending more time at the field and less time in the office so I hope that comes to fruition in the near future well, I hope it does too, Andrew, and I'd, I'd like to say thank you to you on behalf of other hobbyists that uh, what you've done, firstly with the magazine, with what you do on Instagram, with your podcasts and your videos, that uh, you are out there marketing the hobby to both hobbyists and hopefully some people who are interested in the hobby 
to get them uh, to think about taking it up. Um, I am most of the time a fellow hobbyist and I just want to see new people take it up and let's keep this fantastic hobby going for years and years to come. Yeah, I agree 100%. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thank you. Pleasure to talk. Big thank you to Mike O'Reilly talking all things gliding and everything in between the industry. Uh, he really is a great bloke uh, and I really appreciate him joining me here on the podcast. Now, earlier I talked about uh, a refurbishment project that I'm currently undertaking and uh, it's the project is what I classify as the it can wait basket. So I'm running out of things to do in this lockdown situation. Every model that that I've that is built is flyable. Uh, every drone, you know, I had some a drone FPV drone sitting there for almost two years. That's now flyable. So I'm down to only a handful of things left. Uh, I've got one that's in the way too hard basket for me at this point in time. One other project. But the one that I'm now onto is a glider. And I thought I'd talk a bit about it because, you know, we just had Mike O'Reilly and this experience of, of working with this glider. The glider is a model that when I was a kid, I always wanted but couldn't afford. Uh, and uh, I was around at uh, a good friend of mine, Cosmo Mortius, who we're going to get Cosmo on the podcast. Cosmo was the designer for um, Flat Out RC magazine and uh avid aero modeler so we'll get him on one day anyway uh i was around at his house and he showed me his glider and i went oh that's the glider that i always always wanted and he said oh you can have it and um gave him a bit of cash and handed it over now the model is a southern sailplanes ricochet now southern sailplanes was a company small little business out here in melbourne that made gliders predominantly in the 80s could be late 70s 80s into the 90s and what they were were uh five glass fuse gliders really sleek looking kind of things in their day they were the duck's guts and a lot of people use them for competition but now they're probably considered to be too heavy for, heavy for a competition model nowadays we're in the era of carbon fiber and you know they're probably half the weight of what the old ricochet was but the ricochet glider has it's still i just love looking at the sleekness of the fuselage it is phenomenal and it was it was a popular model, and now and again you do see some of them come up now. So I picked up this um, this model from uh, Cosmo, and I think it's the the unlimited version. It's got the spoilers and the flaps and everything. It's, it's designed to sort of be a thermaler and also a slope sore. It can sort of go either way. Uh, I think it's around about the two and a half meter wingspan mark, something like that. Anyway, so Cosmo had flown it. He'd flown it off the slope and reckons it was one of the best models he ever flew uh, off the slope. But he'd stripped all the gear out of it. He had it in the back shed. It was covered in dust and all that kind of thing. So I brought it home, cleaned it up. And the first thing, the fuse is sort of uh, tarnished a little bit. It's just got this sort of, it's not as pristine white like it would have come out of the uh, out of the factory. It's a bit, got a slightly yellow tinge, but I put a bit of cut and polish on it and it sort of cleaned it up. And uh, all the wings, they could do with a recover. And I'm really tossing up whether to recover them. But all the gear was out. Now, what I'll tell you about is how far we have come with our technology. So this um, glider, all the servos, so there's one for spoilers, uh, one for f one servo for flaps, one for aileron, one for rudder, one for elevator. And so there's about five servos in the thing. They're all mounted within the fuselage. 
So you have this elaborate like linkage set up to get all the flaps working and the ailerons and all that kind of stuff. And I suppose back then maybe the servos weren't as great or or, or whatnot, but the you know we didn't have slimline servos that you could put into the wings. But it was just nowadays when we build a glider, especially with ailerons and flaps, we put the the servos in the wings. But no, everything is in the fuselage. So it's it's you know in the competition glider now is a tiny little thing. There's a lot more space in this glider. So all the hookups are just long runs of, of rods and uh, bending rods to f- to get around other things. And it's, and and the other thing is like even to the field setup is a lot more involved because you have all these linkages to set up in, with inside the fuselage. So I'm currently working through it, you know, because as I said, Cosmo had stripped all the gear and I'm going to refabricate a few little things, but I'm getting there. So that's going to be my COVID thing. Now, the plan is I might slope saw it and I might put a tow hook on it and see if I can bungee launch it or launch it or something like that. But uh, grabbing these old planes and uh, refurbishing them is, is actually a great thing to do. I'll try to, you know, I'll put more modern servos in it. I've got a selection of high-tech servos that I bought a while ago. Uh, so I'm trying to simplify things for me. Um what was interesting is that you know, all the servos that originally when it came out, you had quite big servos. Now you can, you know, they say you need three kilo servos. Well, a mid-sized servo will put out you know, 3.4 kilos of torque with a six volt battery connected to it. So I'm going to give it a crack. It might take me a bit of while. Uh, I know it's going to fly okay. I can just tell, you know, you just look at the thing. I had to redo the rudder actually. The rudder um, uh, fell off, like it's got uh, hinges. Uh, like robot style hinges but they were completely out the whole sort of tail the rudder area had been flogged out you know where the connection was so i found some dowel put some dowel in the holes epoxy the living daylights out of it next thing i'll just re-drill and uh and then re-epoxy the uh the hinges in so that'll be that'll be all okay should i strip the covering off yes it needs to be recovered but do I want to keep it as authentic as possible as an old school glider that's been used a little bit? We'll see. I suppose I can always fly it if I want to change the covering. I can do that later. So that's my pet project that's going on at the moment. About to leave, already packing. Come with me, I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. That's it. Another episode of the Flat Out RC podcast done and dusted. Thank you once again for joining me, and especially to those people that have subscribed. Uh, and make sure you tell your friends all about the Flat Out RC podcast. It's one of the authentic Australian content providers. You know, that's what we're doing here at Flat Out RC. We're trying to bring you uh, some of the, the guests from uh, both Australia and from around the world. So, working on more guests as we speak. So big thank you for joining me. Don't forget to follow Flat RC on the Instagram. We've cracked 6,000 subscribers to the Flat Out RC Instagram page. It now makes us one of the biggest Instagram pages for model flying going around. Not drones. Drones seem to have a good demographic where you get a, get a few thousand more than uh, what I'm averaging. But for model planes and things like that, we're doing pretty well uh, as a little independent content provider. So jump onto the Instagram page, uh, Facebook as well, and don't forget the YouTube as well. And stay tuned for more Flat Out RC goodness. Be back next week.
Thanks a lot. Cliche, we're on the run. This is what we waited for.